come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it As summer turns toward August, my mind starts thinking about roadside counts and, of course, hunting season, which is right around the corner. Often, these conversations uh, involve me watching social media and state agency reports coming out and then the social media reaction to those state agency reports. And invariably, I see comments along the lines of, Oh, I hope pheasants are pulling off a second nest. <laughs> and, and Ron's giggling already because there's a lot of potential inaccuracy in that statement. We've all heard it out in the field. Uh, oh, they had a great second nesting success this year. It's like, did they? So that's what we're going to talk about today on this episode of On the Wing Podcast. It's going to be extremely focused on setting the record straight on reproduction. Well, pheasant and quail reproduction anyways. (laughs) To help me break down the basics of the birds and the bees... (laughs) <laughs> Ron on reproduction. How's that this, for alliteration, this is, that's Ron? That's a way to start it off. Uh, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's chief conservation officer, a biologist, Ron Leathers. You can listen back to uh, Ron's first appearance on On the Wing podcast when he was recently named chief conservation officer. That was episode 99. So I guess we can call you the Wayne Gretzky of Pheasants Forever and <laughs> that's, Quail that's, Forever. Not, I don't feel real comfortable all of a sudden here. <laughs> I was much better off a few minutes ago before you said that. So I, I do want to talk very hardcore biology, very singularly focused today. Uh, normally I go through a whole lot of background and, you know, establish your credentials folks can go back and listen to nine episode 99 you're the chief conservation officer for pheasants forever and quail forever you know a bit or two about bird biology so we're going to talk pheasants first quail second so let's start with the basics of pheasant nesting um when's mating season when's nesting season when's the hatch and i know there's some variability there but give give the basics yeah, I mean, it's kind of fun to be the head bird nerd today. Uh, <laughs> the head bird nerd. The head bird nerd. I've got, you like uh, that better than the Wayne Gretzky of Pheasants It makes me a little more comfortable. It, it really sets right. a better standard for me. We'll go with that. The main bird nerd. Main bird nerd. Uh, yeah, so these birds are, uh, like you said, it, it varies depending on where you're at in the range further further south you get a, a longer period of nesting they can get started earlier you know it, they're they're pretty adapted to timing they want those chicks to come out of the eggs when there's a whole lot of bugs for them to to eat and mm-hmm. so you back your way up from that mm-hmm. right so we know mid-june we're gonna have a whole lot of bugs so let's back up when can we start nesting you're really looking at beginning of may okay. when those birds start getting out onto the nest okay um you know they're they're building that nest early on they lay so they're building the nest before May, right? Because they're, they're it can be nest initiation, so they're establishing a nest, and they're dropping 
eggs, but they're not sitting on them. Right. Yeah. So it, the whole process is is build a nest for a day or two, throw a dozen eggs on the ground. One, one, a, a, one day, a day. Right. So one a day, you're putting eggs on the ground, and then she'll start sitting when she's done nesting. When and she's the done average, average clutch of eggs is 12. Yep, okay. a dozen. They dozen. can do, you know, they can get pretty, they can get a bunch of them out of there. Hmm. But that, that 12 is average, 12 to 15 is what you typically see. One a day, and then she'll sit. And mm. she sits by herself for 23 days and waits and waits. 23 and waits and days waits. after 12 are laid. Yep. And it, it, it is fascinating, the fact that they can lay one a day, but the biology of the egg doesn't start to kick in until... Isn't that incredible? They, it, 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 Mother nature is fascinating. It doesn't right? break down. Those, those first eggs are no less viable than that last egg. And somehow it's just as soon as she starts warming them up and she starts sitting on them, they start getting going. Clicks into gear. That's it. It, it is fascinating. Okay, so they're laying. The hen is laying on the nest. Twelve eggs. Yep. Um, out grabbing something to eat. Very her... little time, right? She's she's committed to that nest. So twenty hours a day, I think. Okay, is what so we're twenty at. out of twenty-four hours sitting. Pretty on that significant nest. amount of time she's sitting on that nest. So um, she's out, out and about, and a raccoon stumbles upon the nest and eats all those eggs. Yep. Then what happens? So that depends. If one of those eggs is hatched, that nest is complete in her mind, and she's done for the year. She's going to go into mama mode. Okay. If that nest gets destroyed and none of those have hatched, she'll give it another shot. Pheasants okay. are really, really good at renesting. So that's a really important distinction for listeners. If... So if it happens on day 12 of the incubation process, that fe- that pheasant hen will go and lay another clutch of eggs, but there's a difference in that second clutch. Right? Much smaller, yeah. Much smaller. So the average number of eggs is 12 in the first attempt. It yep. goes down precipitously. Might be half as many. Okay, so, yep. s- so maybe six, maybe nine. Um, let's say it happens again that darn raccoon finds the nest again. The, they will try a third time. Yeah, so we're in generalities at this point, right? The okay. first nest is the important one. That's the, the most one, important. The most important one. So she's putting a bunch of eggs out there, and she's hoping to carry a few of those those chicks to adulthood. That's her goal. Mm-hmm. Um, average nest success depends, but it could be 25% okay. on that first nest. So she's going to get out there. She's going to put her best effort into that first nest. That one fails. Her body condition, remember, she's losing a significant amount of her body weight. She's using up the energy reserves in her body, the calcium that's in her body to make those eggs, to make those babies. So every time she's got to make another egg, she gets a little weaker and a little weaker. And the weaker calcium and is the weaker. key component. Right. Yeah. So that's why she's she's hammering on bugs early on, getting after it from the very beginning when she's making eggs. She needs every bit of protein and calcium that she can absorb mm. to get in there and make those things. So you think... She just created a dozen eggs. I mean, what percentage of her body weight does it take to make a dozen eggs? It's pretty pretty significant. Mm-hmm. Sits on those things. If, if that if that nest gets eaten right off the bat, she might not have the stores to go ahead and do that again right away. Okay. So it might take a little bit of time we, to build and it. And that's the component where we talk about the impact of a, a severe winter. It's not necessarily about the mortality of birds coming through the winter. It's really about... How strong are hens? Body condition. The body condition yep. of hens coming into nesting season dictates how um, how much ability they have to continue 
re-nesting Correct. during yep. during the nesting season. It'll it'll impact the number of eggs they put out in that first clutch. It'll impact their ability to re-nest if one gets destroyed. Um, you know, it can in, impact their ability to mom at some point too. So we really need those hens coming into season in good condition, and we really need to make sure those first nests, the really really important first nest attempt is where you get the majority of your recruitment from. Right, and the number of eggs dictates that you have a higher population. Correct. Okay, so you were going to, there's a difference if it happens on, say, day 23 that, that, um, say, a fox finds, or a feral cat, you pick your predator, finds a nest or a brood as long as a singular chick has hatched out of those eggs. Correct. One, it changes the dynamic of reproduction in that hen's mind. Yeah, mama mode is something special. I mean, they call it about they call it imprinting with people, mm-hmm. right? It's the same thing with with birds. As soon as they see that first chick come out of that nest, as soon as that they start pipping, they call it pipping when they get in there and they mm. peck their way out of the out of the egg. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as they see that egg tooth coming out of that that nest, they they're in mom mode. Mm. So she'll finish. You know, she'll finish the nesting cycle. She'll get all those guys and gals out of the out of the egg. Uh, but when she sees that first one, she's done as a layer for the year. She's going to move on and go into mom. So if if a predator attacks and kills the the brood, that hen has moved on with their life, and she's they're not going to. The so the idea of pheasants having a really good second nesting. I mean that's a fallacy. It 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 would be super rare. I mean, it, biologically possible, perhaps, but boy, it'd be really, really, really rare. Hmm. All right, before we go to quail, I want to ask you. You know, everybody's wondering, well, what's nesting season been like right now? <laughs> so, you know, we don't have singular roadside count. We right. just hear reports. But you're a biologist. You, at least from a Minnesotan's perspective, and you you talk with biologists from the Dakotas to Kansas, Nebraska. Like give genera- generalities of yep. what this season's been like. So the things that hurt nest success in the pheasant range are late snow, early gully washers, or lack of rain overall that's going to impact her ability to, well, that's really going to impact the broods more so than the nests. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have that late snow. I mean, it, it was pretty snowy in Minnesota into April, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. she probably came in in not the greatest body condition. It was a tough winter. Um yeah, but I surprised though, man, the number of bir- of birds we're hearing about and seeing. And, yep. you know, just this morning, somebody sent me a picture of a trail cam. He's like, I can't get a deer on my trail cam because my dang pheasants are <laughs> lighting me up. <laughs> right. So they're out there. You yeah. Know. So we did have a, we had a long, tough winter, but we didn't have a particularly hard late winter. It wasn't cold. It didn't form that. So it, it, lots of snow, but we didn't form that ice crust that they can't get through, right? And then spring was really wet, but not gully washer wet. Right. It was it was like a really good green up yep. wet, right? The ponds really filled up. All kinds of good stuff and, happened. And nesting habitat, like lickety split, was there. Yep. And insect insect production was great. Insects were good early on. And now a drought hit. But from a pheasant's perspective, again, no gully washers. The insects are already there, so. We probably didn't lose a ton of nests through rain events or a chicks through hail events, right? right? So the nesting should be good. The, yeah. We should have good nest success. 
it, it's a little dry for chicks right now. Mm. So those those invertebrates don't last very long. They're mm. not they're not living a very long time. So those ones that were around in April and May probably are gone. Okay. That next batch is what these these chicks need to live the off. The grasshoppers. They need and grasshoppers are later. We need oh. soft bodied insects or so like on. beetles and stuff? No, we need like larvae. We need oh, as, okay. as soft of things as they can get early on. And then they'll progress to those harder food sources and things that are tougher to catch. Hmm. But right off the bat, you know, chicks what three inches tall, little tiny thing. Yeah. I suppose the grasshopper's like right yeah, horse, huh? <laughs> exactly. How's he gonna get that in his gullet in the first place? Mm. So they'll grab anything they can get. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more than happy to eat anything that they can catch, but those soft bodied insects that don't move real fast mm-hmm. are high in protein. Those are what they really need to, to get growing. And then as they move into that fourth to fifth week, they're going to really start to target some bigger invertebrates. And they really don't switch over to seeds in green, like vegetation until after the first frost, right? Well, they'll move. They start the really the transition after about six weeks, but oh, it's a okay. gradual transition. So pheasants are opportunists in every sense of the word, right? They live in downtown Detroit, and they live in in the edges of fields in South Dakota and everywhere in between. They're, they feed the same way. Hmm. If there's a food source there, they're going to grab it. And I think anybody that's had a food plot fail and found their, their birds in the kosha recognizes what they can do. They're going to transition to what's available and really what's available in the summertime is a lot of bugs. Hmm. What becomes available later in the season are those are those seeds. Seeds. Uh, non-biologists call that opportunivores. Opportunivores. I like it. <laughs> I like it. All right. Uh, shout out to Onyx, proud supporter, national partner of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, and a supporter of On the Wing podcast. They want to thank everybody who is a member of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and loves to chase birds with their bird dogs and, and help us create the habitat homes where those birds live. Uh, you, as a listener of On the Wing Podcast, can, can download the Onyx Hunt app for free, uh, for a free seven-day trial, and get 20% off when you use the code PFQF. That's 20% off using the code PFQF and Onyx will donate a portion back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Habitat mission. So thank you very much to Onyx. If you, as a listener, do not have Onyx downloaded on your phone, what are you waiting for? It is the single best tool, well, outside of your bird dog, uh, and finding birds out there. Um, all right, so let's change the conversation from pheasants to quail. Because there's some differences yep. between the two, and this is probably where some of the inaccuracies in people's minds maybe germinate from. This so is where my hate mail is going to come from right here. Uh, oh, really? Okay. So explain explain the difference in quail. Well, so they're they're very similar. These two species are are pretty similar. You know, biologically, you're going to talk about the same number of eggs. You're going to talk about the same strategies. You're talking about the same habitat types from a nesting perspective. We, it's going to get down to that that renest. So maybe let's start at the beginning yeah, and just walk right walk the same way we did through pheasants. Because the the range for quail, the geographic range is broader. Thirty eight states, yeah. thirty eight states, and have, a yeah. whole lot of species. We're going to generalize this, Very at least so. starting with we're 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 talking about bobwhites, right? So you know, I talked about the pheasant range early on and how there's differences as you go south to north. Mm-hmm. Now you have a longer growing season. You've got different invertebrates and the timing of the start and stop is more variable. 
Think about Bob White. You got 38 states now all of a sudden mm-hmm. that, that are significantly further spread north to south and east to west and in different climates. So everywhere from Kansas to Georgia and think about the rainfall differences between those two states. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to it's it's much more broad. And so I'm going to generalize a lot here. Okay. And, you know, when the biologists call me from North Carolina and yell at me because I talked about you what they do You could tell them it's my fault because the marketing guy wanted to That's generalize right. everything. That's right. Don't blame the bird nerd. You did hear him say opportunivore right before we got into the biology <laughs> of quail, right? That's right. You got cover. It's my fault. But just for, for under easy, ease of understanding, take us through it. So think about a similar time frame. Um, these birds really are starting in early May. They're the same concept, right? It's going to take a day or two to build a nest. Uh, Bob White do this really cool thing where they're, they're first nest. So they're going to scratch a nest out. They're going to build a ground nest the same way a pheasant would, but they're going to put a canopy over that first one, which is kind really? of cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. The first nests have this little bit of a canopy that they're weaving in there pretty huh. frequently. Huh. Um, anyway, they're going to dump out an egg a day or she's going to dump out an egg a day. Dad doesn't have anything to do with that. His job's done at that point. He's helping build For the now. nest. Right. So he's building the nest with her. Okay. She's going to put an egg a day out there for a dozen days, 12 to 15 again. Okay. And then they're both going to sit. So they're going to take turns sitting. Dad's going to have some participation in there. The, the rooster or pheasant is a whole different critter, right? He's out there doing his job another time. Right. Does not help with incubation at all. Not at all. Different with quail. Much different with quail. The so, Mr. Mom advantage I've been known to say. <laughs> that's right. So Bob White, it's a, it's a dual parent system. Hmm. Uh, they're both helping to raise that or to, to, to incubate that nest. nest. Okay. Um, same concept. I mean, you've got, they're going to sit for 23 days. And then when that chick starts coming out of the egg, going to switch over to mom and dad mode. Okay. Uh, this is where the hate mail is going to start to come in. So a couple quick things. Okay. First off, we talk about the peak season for Bob White quail being that mid-June, that, that uh, target date, I think, is, is June 15th in most places. Which is the same target date, yep. uh, peak of the hatch for pheasants. Yep. So um, in in the bobwhite world, more recently, we've started to age these birds when we get wing surveys, and we're finding a more even distribution mm-hmm. through the year. So there's this peak hatch, right? You think about a classic bell curve. Mm-hmm. That bell curve can be really peaked. And you see that in the pheasant range a little bit where mm-hmm. a lot of those are coming off at the same time. And you hear about all these brood reports coming off at the same time. Quail are much better distributed through the year. And so there's still a bell curve, right? The mm-hmm. majority, the, the, the biggest number is mid-July, but it's a much mid-June. flatter. Or mid, mid-June. Uh, well, we're going to move that. Okay. We're going to move that to mid-July on average. So the oh, okay. average date of the chicks that they're finding in these studies when they actually when they age these birds later in the year is a mid-July okay. date. Okay. And it's a much flatter bell curve than okay. you're going to see in the pheasant range. So what that means. Which makes a little sense, right? Because of the as you move south, the potential season for reproduction is longer. Well, yeah. So you're going to get more time. It's going to be more variable. Um, the study, the one study that really started a lot of this work was done in Missouri, almost exclusively in Missouri on mm-hmm. Missouri birds. And they found that flatness in Missouri, and then they've replicated that in some other places. Mm-hmm. So there's some management objectives that we'll get into, you know, when we kind of get down the road here a little bit. Okay. But that's pretty significant to note because we've always said, June 15th is the end of it, right? Starting in July, you can go burn your, 
your habitat. Mm. We'll talk about maybe the way that we do that differently um, if we want to protect those birds. Mm. Um, but yeah, same concept. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna come off the nest. Uh, bobwhite do re-nest, right? Re-nest if they lost their clutch of eggs Correct. like pheasants. If they lose the clutch, they're going to re-nest, but they're not as prevalent of re-nesters, hmm. which is, is, this sounds, again, this is where the hate mail's coming in. About 13% of bobwhite are going to try to re-nest. Huh. Only about 13% are going to And it's a, it a significantly shot. higher percentage for pheasants. Correct. Okay. So think about that body condition we talked about mm-hmm. before. A pheasant's got a whole lot more material to draw from to mm-hmm. make an egg. A bobwhite's a much smaller critter and okay. doesn't have that same that same benefit. So about 13% attempt that re-nest. So you think about your bird populations out there, 50% of those nests are going to come off in that first period right Mm -hmm. and then those ones that they lose only 13 percent. that means you're getting reproduction from maybe 56 percent okay of your of your population of hens so think think about what we could do if we could get more than that right right um fairly significant um the thing about bob white is that they will second clutch okay so so let's just establish some basics here so just like pheasants if a hen Quail, Bob White, loses the clutch of eggs before any hatch. They will re-nest. Well, they will try to re-nest, but at a lot smaller percentage than present. If that hen Bob White loses a clutch uh, uh, of, of birds after they've hatched, will they try to re-nest after? Like we talked about pheasants, yep. they won't. They won't. Will a Bob White Bob try? White can okay um it, it, the question is whether that is a re-nest attempt or if that's a split nest attempt okay like if dad is sitting on the nest uh-huh. and she dumps another nest somewhere else are there just six eggs in each nest and it's just a split nest gotcha or did she go find another mate have another nesting attempt? which has also been documented correct yeah. yep so there's this there's this nobility of bob white that they're a monogamous species they get around a little more than we think they do. <laughs> um, so it, it's not a. It's a little bit more cut and dry with pheasants. It's a little. I guess I think there's the persistence to keep nesting is maybe a little stronger in bobwhite, but the percentages are a little bit lower. Right. Okay. Because there's been documentation, although small numbers of a hen bobwhite quail having up to three successful clutches of chicks in one single nesting season, which dictate or goes to their persistence. And it also goes to the length of time that's possible for, for nesting. But what you're telling me is while that's possible, the percentages are pretty low. It's pretty rare. Uh, You know, that, that second nest attempt, again, you're just looking at body condition on a bird. Uh It is really hard on a hen to put out a bunch of eggs. Okay. And so it, for her to be, to come into condition, to put out a bunch of eggs, to say, okay, dad, go, go take care of those. I'm going to put out a whole nother set of eggs here mm-hmm. is going to take a lot of a really, really healthy, a really healthy hen. And it's going to put her in some terrible health condition by the end of that second or shoot third right. clutch. And so, you know, that's documented. I don't know what the size was. I haven't read the that study okay. to see what the size of those those nests were. Did you she would put out four eggs in each one, right? You think it'd be smaller, nests. right? Right. And are they related? Are they same parents? Right. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know what that is, but 
we do know that they can second nest, mm -hmm. but we know it's it's more rare, I think, than we like to believe it is. Okay. I've always perceived um, quail like when all the conditions are right, like a mild winter, a perfect nesting season, they have the ability to have a hockey stick style population explosion. Like we've yep. seen that happen. I'm thinking about, um, oh, like 2014, 2015 in Texas. Like, it, you know, they went from populations where they're flushing like 12 coveys a day to like 60 coveys sure. a day. So it is possible to have major explosions in bird numbers and quail numbers when things are perfect. Yeah, and pheasants can do the same thing. Okay. Anytime you can dump out a, a dozen. Right. So if you've got a really successful nest season, you've got a really good clutch, you've, they're coming off, they're bringing a bunch of birds all the way to recruitment, which right. means bring them to adulthood, right? right? One hen brings 10 chicks to adulthood. That's a hockey stick. Yeah. That's that's exponential growth. Okay. Uh, we've talked exclusively about bobwhites. Anything in it, I know they're, all these species are different, right? <laughs> Merns, yep. gambles, scalies, uh, valley quail, mountain quail. Yeah, we could spend time on what well, we've done, podcast specific yeah. to each species. But anything you throw out there is dramatically different about the quail species uh you know not dramatically different but really it's so water driven in those western systems mm. so we can you know i'm a western guy i can sit here and talk western stuff all day long but you'll never talk to somebody from the west that's into resources that doesn't lead with water because that drives all of those systems mm. and so i mean you've seen it on the the search for merns right if we don't mm -hmm. if it doesn't rain in merns country switch to gambles yep. because they're gonna have a lot more success that year those desert species are just going to be more adaptable to. Well, the whole thing's a desert, but yeah, I mean the the yeah, the merns habitat type is so narrow. It doesn't feel like it's desert when you're hunting merns, though. <laughs> right? It's, well, right? Because it you felt got, hot when I was down there. Yeah, last but time. the oak trees versus like the cactus right. in mesquite, where you know the cat's claw. Well, there's cat's claw and everything, but right. you know it does feel dramatically different when you're hunting scalies versus. Scalies have more grass involved. Yep. Gambles have more cactus. Merns feels like Montana. To it me. does feel a little bit more like chucker hunting. Mm -hmm. It's mountainous or you know hilly at least mm -hmm. stuff, and you're and you're chasing those birds through that hilly stuff. But that system again is totally water dependent. There'll be a lot of just, and I, I suspect it's body condition. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't looked at the data, and again, I'll probably get hate mail from Merns people, but. I, I suspect it's body condition of the hens. Mm -hmm. They can't sacrifice their body condition in a desert-type climate unless they've got a, a decent amount of rain that can produce some invertebrates that can give them a food source that they need to make eggs. So when we were talking about quail and the length of time, you were alluding to habitat differences and management differences. Go ahead and explain what you're thinking there. So Bob White, uh, we've always said... July, you know, June 15th is the peak of hatch date. And so let's get through June 15th, protect that from May through June. And then in July, you can get out there and start burning your, burning your grasslands mm -hmm. to keep those. To improve habitat yep. and keep invasive species down invasive and reinvigorate them. Eliminate that, that leaf cutter cover mm -hmm. underneath. So those little tiny chicks can run through there next year. What we're doing probably is we're burning up a lot of 
a lot of nests because those hens are more evenly distributed. Remember, we didn't we talked about there not being a major peak in the middle, mm-hmm. a much more flat distribution. We're losing a lot of those later nesting hmm. hens or a lot of those later nests because we're burning them up in July or in August. So if we can protect that season from May through August mm-hmm. and then get into the field in September and October, we can still achieve our management goals. Eliminate the leaf get to the field to burn to burn it. Right. Okay. So we can still get rid of those invasive trees. We know that Mm -hmm. we know that those trees are taking over the entire country right now, particularly the grassland. uh, Yeah, you're talking cedars and junipers, mesquite and cedars, and all these eastern trees are moving west across the prairie. So if you live in Kansas or particularly in Oklahoma or Texas, you're seeing this massive invasion of trees just taking over these grasslands. we burn those out. That's how we get rid of them. Mm-hmm. You burn them out of there and you get rid of that leaf litter that allows the chicks to have better brood habitat the next year. And it helps water supply, right? Yep. Because those, those cedars, trees, they, they just suck, suck a ton of water. Uh, yeah. Junipers out west, I think the, da- the stat is like 10 gallons per tree per day. Hmm. So you look at some of those juniper choked valleys or, or hilltops even out west and think about how much water they're taking away from the grasslands and right. the sagebrush ecosystem which has massive implications for mule deer populations Huge. and sage grouse and the aquifer and yep yeah and every person that lives in the west you know you're, you're in salt lake and you're watching a, a wall of salt come flying across in one of those windy days mm. that's all about water availability upstream and we're doing work in that space but that's another podcast for yeah. another day yeah <laughs> the uh the other implication there is let's get out and do our burning in September and October, but let's also make sure we're doing small patch burns. Mm. So if you burn off half your habitat, you say, okay, the, the, the hens are done. They're the nests are off. We're going to burn off half of that this year. You probably just eliminated half of your potential to re-nest. Mm. So you've wiped out, I don't know, 40%, maybe 30% of those nests that were in that space. Mm. And you've eliminated that as a potential place for re-nesting. So mm. if we say 13% of those birds are going to try to re-nest, we're going to pack them into a much smaller space. Okay. We're going to expose them to more predation because it's easier for predator search in a smaller sure. space. So patch burns later in the season. Later? What about super early in the season? Or super early in the season if okay. you want to get after them before them, but then you lose the nesting in those places that you're burning. Okay. So, Even if you're burning in like Georgia in February? Yeah. I mean, you'll get some regrowth that you can that you can go into, but those birds are using last year's vegetation to make a nest. Gotcha. They're weaving together wow. so last it, year's vegetation. It, it, you really have to thread the needle when you talk about every single podcast we talk with a quail biologist is like the number one tool for quail habitat management is burn, 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 burn. burn. And you got to do it way more often than the pheasant range. You got to do it every two years to minimize things getting choked out, trees. But now with what we know about the length of nesting season for quail, you're saying the window to get those burns done is even narrower. Is fall. Yep. Ideally we're looking at fall burns. And again, these are broad generalities. Yeah. We're yep. looking at, you know, there's plantations in Florida that have got good burn rotations that are that are happening throughout the year. If you've got different 
uh, you know, vegetation that you need to get rid of invasive species that have to burn at a mm-hmm. certain time, or you're not going to be able to kill them off. You got to burn at that yeah, time. Because right? burning as a management tool is more important than losing a nest here. Yep, there. exactly right. We're, we're focused on the long term, the forever part of quail mm-hmm. forever and not just the quail today piece of mm-hmm. it. So mm-hmm. burning during the season is important under some conditions, but all things being equal, mm-hmm. the later you can do that burn, the more nest success you're going to have in that year. Okay. Interesting. Um, anything we missed talking about pheasant, quail, nesting success, biology of the biology of the birds and the bees and reproduction. Yeah. I mean, biologically, I don't think we missed a whole lot. It's just the importance of getting the, the cover on the landscape is I'm going to switch from, from head bird nerd to head government affairs nerd here pretty Mm. quick. Mm Mm-hmm. We have to find ways to keep grass on the landscape. And so that's really what's important. If we're, if we get on the mower too early in the year, we're going to lose, we're going to lose places for birds to nest. If we burn those things off too early in the year, we're going to lose places for, for birds to nest. If we don't have enough CRP on the grass or grass on the ground, Mm -hmm. we don't have places for birds to nest. And so we all want more places. We want more birds. We want more places to hunt that all starts with getting grass in the ground. So we've got to find ways to get more grass to protect the grass that we've got. That all has to happen through the tools that we either have in our place or that we're looking for like the grasslands act. Yeah. Let's push, push, push to get every acre of grass we can out there. And we can do that in ways that, that help landowners be profitable. We can do that in ways that help get people on out into the fields. I want, I'll, I'll talk about it all the time. I want more birds and I want more boots chasing them. Hmm. And so every bit of grass gives us that chance to get more birds and more boots. So I know we we started within days of each other back in 2000. Yeah. Congratulations at 20 years. You as well. Um, and I remember back 20 years ago, there was a graphic that showed the number one. It, you remember the, the map of the U.S. And it showed like the entire U.S., like 98% of the country, the singular limiting factor for pheasant success reproduction success is nesting nesting cover right i think that the other two percent is like far northern north dakota and montana where there's a need for winter cover yeah right because of the harshness of of winter you need cattail slews and things but 98 percent of the entirety of the rest of the country upland bird populations depend on nesting cover which is what you're referencing when you're talking about keeping grass on the ground whether that's improved crp program in the federal farm bill brand new grasslands act yep recovering america's wildlife act you pick your favorite state tool you know whether it's rim or crap uh, but the name of the game buffers ditches I, did, I saw a stat here recently, the importance of ditches. Like, everything matters. Like, Every piece of grass like, matters. We, we spent a lot of time years ago worrying about roadsides, mm-hmm. right? How do we delay roadside mowing? How do we maintain some nesting potential in those roadsides? How, we're, we're looking at under power lines right now. Mm-hmm. or around infrastructure, right? How do we get every acre of grass that we can in a way that, that again, is profitable for a landowner because mm-hmm. – we, we don't want that landowner to have to subsidize it, but let's find a way to make it profitable. Let's find a way to get more grass on the landscape. Our favorite birds, our upland birds, mm-hmm. live in the fastest declining ecosystem in the world. Yeah, The fastest declining ecosystem in the world is the Great Plains of North America. 
it's our rainforest. We're living in it right now. And all this nesting biology, all this reproduction, the birds and the bees happen in that ecosystem. And we got to find a way to keep more of it around and make more of it. Awesome. Thank you for doing this. You bet. Folks, if you're listening and you're not yet a member of Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever, please join pheasantsforever.org, quailforever.org. We've got uh, we've got the trampled membership offer going on right now for both. You can get a trampled by pheasants or trampled by quail t-shirt, pheasantsforever.org slash trampled or quailforever.org slash trampled. If you are already a member, read up on actforgrasslands.org. That's the Grasslands Act initiative we're super involved with and big news coming hopefully over the horizon there. Cross your fingers. Um, but get in, get educated on that. That, uh, that Like Ron said, grass on the ground meets birds in the air in front of your bird dogs this fall, next fall, and for your kids' fall um, to come. So thank you very much for listening. We hit this. Well, it's a little longer than I was anticipating, but we did all right. Um, Thanks for listening, folks. And I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.